I'm Susan Brown. I'm Michaela Joy O'Shea. And I'm Jay Yee. You're listening to Beyond the Fog Radio. Our podcast about the untold stories of San Francisco's long history from the people that have helped shape it. Whether you're new to San Francisco or have lived here your entire life, join us as we share the stories of our city by the bay. So this is our series, Exploring the Neighborhood, and it's always fun to chat about those neighborhoods that we were just interviewing people in. So today, we're talking about Noe Valley. I grew up in the Haight-Ashbury, which isn't far from Noe Valley, and I didn't get to know Noe Valley or really the neighborhood until I got a little bit older and would take the bus to see my friend Nomi. But I love Noe Valley. It's charming and it's sweet and has cute little houses. <laughs> That's what I know about Noe Valley as well is the the cute little houses and right there along the mission. But honestly, I really don't have a whole lot of experience with Noe Valley, especially not as a kid like you did, Susan. As a kid, I went to my friend's houses I because I was driven there by my mom and dropped off. You know, I couldn't really run around the neighborhood. But now that neighborhood is great, full of kids, and it's sunny over there, and good food, and it's kind of been the same all this time. Noe mm-hmm. Valley and the Mission. The Mission has made sweeping changes. It's cool. It is. And it's great to know that it's pronounced Noe Valley and not No Valley. I feel like that's a very... <laughs> San Francisco. If you know San Francisco, you know how to pronounce it. Exactly. (laughs) Valerie and Greg Landau are siblings who both grew up in San Francisco's Mission District and Noe Valley neighborhood. Valerie is an education innovator who has authored and co-authored numerous books and scholarly articles. Currently, she consults on how to reimagine education with the new world of artificial intelligence. Greg is an award-winning music composer, performer, record producer, and music historian with a career spanning over 50 years. He's worked with many high-profile clients and produced eight Grammy-nominated albums. Together, these two siblings paint a vivid portrait of life growing up in San Francisco in the 1960s and 1970s. My name is Valerie Landau. I'm an educational technologist, and I've been working sort of in the crossroads between technology and education most of my life. And now I'm just doing consulting especially working with how do we make AI, artificial intelligence work for education and doing some work in mixing 3D applications with artificial intelligence and wow. creating an educational theater in the 3D space. Wow. So that's what I'm up to. You're so days. contemporary. Modern. <laughs> yes. I mean, we could have a whole other conversation about that, which we probably won't have, because I'm like, this is the first time I heard education and AI being friendly. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. As opposed to cheating on tests. Yeah. Exactly. Right? So it's a real challenge, and it's very exciting, and we're really doing some pioneering work in that field. That's wonderful. But I work with a woman-led artificial intelligence company. 
Wow, so, that's so oh, cool. that's great. <laughs> really wonderful. Yes. Yeah, that's really wonderful. So. so I'm Greg Landau, and I grew up both in Noy Valley and the Mission, graduated from Mission High. All right. Go Bears. I'm a music producer. Uh, I do music supervising for films and composing for films. And I teach one class at UC Santa Cruz and just recently retired from San Francisco City College in the Latin American Studies Department. Well, I, I think what I'd like to do, if that's okay with you, since the three of you know each other, we'd like to turn the tables on the three of you since we're talking about neighborhoods. Yeah. Okay. Susan looks surprised. I know, Susan's like, what? She's like, what? Yeah. Well, you know, because sometimes <laughs> it gets formal. And, I know. And, you know, this is a very informal relationship. You've all spent some time together growing up in school, right? So the three of us went to Presidio Hill School, but I know Valerie and Greg in terms of a neighborhood. I know them from Eureka Valley, which is now Noe Valley, but I don't know you guys from the mission. So let's start from the way, way back and start off. Where were you both born and then what neighborhood did you come home from the hospital to? Well, we were both born in Madison, Wisconsin, where our parents were studying. Oh. They were both students at the University of Wisconsin. And we came to San Francisco in 1960. 1960. And we lived in the mission from 1960 to, I think, 67 or 68, which I think we had been already going to Presidio Hill for a while. Between the mission and Noe Valley, it's only a few blocks. So we moved about six blocks away. So we were still connected to the mission. Presidio Hill is a very interesting school. So tell our listeners about Presidio Hill because that's how we all know each other. Valerie and I were both 10 in 1968, and I wrote a screenplay about that. So tell us a little bit about Presidio Hill because it's a fascinating story. So Presidio Hill, when I first started, was a very small school. There was only 45 students when we first started. The leader of the school, the director of the school at that time, Catherine Frommer, was a real visionary of progressive education. So she really pioneered the idea of multiculturalism as the core of the curriculum and progressive education. So students were really learning hands-on through projects. And she was also a second grade teacher. And a big focus of that whole year for second grade was immersion in Native American studies. Interesting. And so kids in her class grew corn and learned bead weaving and Navajo loom weaving and we would, basket weaving. That's right, basket weaving. In fact, I still have the baskets that Greg and I made in second grade. <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah. Wow. Really learning about geography from a Native American centric perspective. In her classroom, she had a teepee made out of deer skin. Huh. And if anybody was disruptive, she would say, instead of punishing them, she would be like, oh, seems like you're not interested in this. Why didn't you go and play in the teepee? <laughs> yeah, and it was, it was kind of like a privilege. So she was the director of this school and made a very inclusive community. And it was a mix of a lot of different kinds of kids, including kids with learning disabilities. So it was one of the first places where it had this very inclusive feel seemed like it was at the forefront of education. It was at the forefront of education, and boy, did we get a great education. Truly wonderful. I was there, my brother was there, and I'm dyslexic, and so that was the reason why my parents picked that school. And Catherine Fromer was really an amazing person. There's some great stories about Catherine Frommer because Catherine Frommer was in the Communist Party, right? That's right. Okay, so tell that story. So Catherine Frommer and her husband were communists, and 
they had this idea that people should strive for making the world a better place. Also, her son was a very integral part of the school, right? So he was a music teacher when he was starting. I think he was 18 when he started teaching music. His name was John Fromer, later became a very prolific video producer Mm -hmm. at KQED. And he taught my mother how to play guitar. And he taught Greg how to play guitar. Oh, wow. Yeah. So that was a big influence on our lives was the Fromer legacy. So she, as a student, when she graduated from college, she went and lived three years on an Indian reservation and immersed herself in Native crafts and culture. And so she brought that to the school as an integral part of the teaching. And it was also one of the first schools that, you know, this is San Francisco in the 60s that was still segregated. So we still had the Sheraton Palace was not hiring any black people. And this school at that same time, while the civil rights movement was emerging, already had African-American teachers Mm. and already had this idea that diversity was our richness and our wealth. And that was a core value of the school. And also that each student had something to offer, that it wasn't about comparing one student to another student. And there were no grades. Wow. Thanks for bringing the perspective of segregation. It was still around that time. So... It's definitely at the forefront of education. So when you say multiculturalism, really it is about integration and having everything and everyone included. That's fantastic. And you said no grades as far as people being age. No, it was age segregated, but it okay. was no grades. Like you didn't get an, you couldn't fail. There was failure. When you Got didn't it. get an A or a B. That was, <laughs> okay. you just did it to the best of your ability and you weren't compared to other people. And as I remember, the school lunch menu was probably way ahead in terms of nutrition and diversity of foods. I remember there was a Japanese chef. Mr. Shimada. Yeah. Mr. Shimada was the chef for many, many years at that school. And so we all had hot lunches every day, cooked at school. That's amazing. Was it Japanese cuisine? It was international cuisine. He was a professional chef, so he could He did everything. He did everything. Yeah. But he had a phobia of snakes. And one day, one of the classrooms had a snake in it. And the snake disappeared over the weekend. Oh, no. Oh, man. The snake disappeared. (laughs) And Mr. Shimada said, that's it. I am not working in a place where there's a snake on the loose. He picked up his two beautiful handcrafted knives, threw down his apron and walked out and never came back. I mean, that's a, that's a real phobia. That's, and that's a bummer for the school, it sounds like. I think so. Yeah. The people that I remember so well are Johnny Fromer and Chris Prey. But then there's a story about how FBI agents were coming to arrest <laughs> Catherine Fromer. Tell that story. I don't remember. You don't remember? Okay, well, I'll tell it. Okay, (laughs) then it'll refresh. Maybe Greg will remember. Because one of the teachers came out of the classroom and saw them and told you to fly like the wind and tell Mrs. Frommer what was happening. So then you ran up and went to her office to tell her that the government men were coming, and she went out the back door and left. Oh, wow. So you saved her. Well. The, the kids were in on it, <laughs> <laughs> on her escape. <laughs> so both of you tell us a little bit about the two neighborhoods that you grew up in and what they were like back then. Well, Noe Valley at that time was a working class neighborhood. A lot of Irish mm-hmm. working class people, the, the, the parents worked on the docks or somehow related to the docks. At that time when I was growing up, I remember almost everyone I knew was somehow connected to the waterfront. 
as sailors, longshoremen, or some transportation or service, something connected. The waterfront was really the hub of the economy in, in San Francisco and the, the financial district. Noe Valley was a working class neighborhood, and it was a little bit rough at that time. It's hard to imagine at this now, yeah. right now, but it was. And we got to know the city very well because we commuted on the bus from Noe Valley to Pacific, to Pacific Heights. Heights. Yeah, every day, which was three buses. Wow, so three we went, buses. Yeah, so we went through the whole the whole city. Right, I learned a lot of street survival skills early. Mm-hmm. So I think I started taking them when I was eight. Wow, at eight, eight years old, yeah, three buses, three buses in downtown San Francisco. Well, not downtown but Pacific, Heights. but Pacific. Pacific Heights. Heights. I mean, well, the middle we, of the we, city. We had to go, so we went from we'd either walk or take the bus about a mile from our house to Castro Street, and then take the twenty four Divisadero from basically twenty fourth and Castro all the way through the Western Edition. To Pacific Heights, and then we'd take either the 1 California or the 55 Sacramento all the way to the school. So we really traversed a lot of, at that time, very rough neighborhoods. And Greg was eight years old. I was five. Yeah. And then the next year, he had to take our neighbors who were four or five, and I was six. Oh my <laughs> and so he was only eight, wow. eight and nine. And nowadays, when I try and think about you know, my grandchildren asking my nine-year-old granddaughter take a four or five-year-old three buses across san francisco no way <laughs> no <Yeah>. way <laughs> isn't that wild how and how, without money yeah. without money because we had bus cards like right bus passes yeah it was a white card that they would clip with a oh. pu- hole puncher the every bus. time you got on right that's that was true. before me yeah. yeah and we'd have to this is my childhood memory really have to hold on to that transfer and make sure you didn't lose it because you'd oh, right. on the first bus they'd punch it and then you'd ask for a transfer and, you know, as a child, I felt like that was a big responsibility to not have to lose that transfer. Because oh it was gosh. just paper. Yeah. Right. yeah it was but there really- were packs of kids on the bus. We weren't the only ones. Oh, okay. Right. The, the buses were full of kids going here and there and just like big groups of kids that would get on and get off and from different schools. Did yeah. you know the bus drivers? Was it the same drivers? Some of them, like the 11 Hoffman was the same driver, but the other ones weren't. So as you traverse the neighborhood and you pick up street skills, what were some of those things you had to do? Like, was there a time where things got a little sketchy? Yeah, I mean, we had to deal with flashers that would expose themselves and gangs, all kinds of weird things that went on in the streets. We got robbed a couple of times. Really? Yeah. Did you? Somebody would rob children? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my At God. knife point. Other children. At knife point. Other children would rob children? Yeah, that's my first memory of San Francisco is we lived on Dolores yeah. and I must have been three or four. And Greg had the great idea that we would take some coins that we had and go to the store and buy candy. What a good <laughs> idea. <laughs> so, so we went around the corner up the hill towards the candy store and these kids came with like wow. little pocket knives and saying, give us your money. And my first response was like that of any toddler, like, no, no way. <laughs> like candy money. <laughs> and Greg is like, give them the money. I was like, but, but they don't want me. give them the money. Uh-huh. I had to give over my, you know, 35 cents or whatever it was. Oh, did you tell your parents this? Yeah. They weren't very sympathetic because they're New Yorkers. Oh. Oh. So kids are robbing kids over in New York in the 60s too, yeah, huh? Yeah, yeah. So what brought your family here from Wisconsin? 
when they were in Wisconsin, they were actually really good friends with Carl Sagan and Lynn Margolis, <gasps> the biologist wow. and the astrophysicist. And so they came out to Berkeley. Lynn Margolis was teaching at UC Berkeley. And my mother was a big fan of the Beat Poets. She was a oh. bohemian. Mm. And so she really wanted to go to San Francisco. And then the Sagans were like, yeah, it's great. You should come out. So they came out and that was like their first friendship. They both started working at the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which was on Cap and 19th, I think. Oh, man. In an abandoned church, which was a, a theater group that performed for free in the parks. Yeah. And my mother was a director and my father was a playwright, wrote several plays for them and, and my mother directed several plays for them. I think this was 1963 till 65 or 66, maybe. Yeah, my father wrote several plays and he helped write one of the first music videos, I think, that was ever produced called Oh Them Watermelons. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what a uh, title. Yeah, and uh, you can see it on YouTube. It's, it's pretty. Robert Nelson. It's it's a classic. Oh, oh Them Watermelon? Oh Dem Watermelons. Is there watermelon in the video? Yes, that's the protagonist. <laughs> I'm going to have to watch this. Was it ever on MTV? As like flashback? No, it was too <laughs> weird and esoteric. Yeah. But it's it was shown a lot in film schools because mm. it was really groundbreaking in the use of music and video. I've heard of this. And the format. Yeah. The short video clip. So it was part of a play that my father wrote called The Minstrel Show, Civil Rights in a Cracker Barrel. And it was six actors, three white and three black, all in blackface. And it was very controversial. At the time, this was 1965. It showed all over the place and caused a big polemic. Wow. This isn't exactly about the neighborhoods, but it kind of is seminal to San Francisco history. So the founder of the Mime Troupe, Ronnie Davis, and my father hired Bill Graham as their intern. As their intern? <laughs> as their intern. Bill Graham, the wow. famous Bill Graham. Bill Graham moved to San Francisco in 1960. Right after his stint in the San Francisco Mine Troupe, he teamed up with music promoter Chet Helms of the Haight-Ashbury. They made the Fillmore Auditorium and Winterland Ballroom famous through bands like The Grateful Dead, Jefferson Airplane, Big Brother, and The Holding Company with Janis Joplin. The Bill Graham Auditorium is located directly across the street from San Francisco City Hall. His first concert that he put on, the first one, was a benefit for the Mime Troupe. Oh, my goodness. At the Fillmore Auditorium. Oh, my God. That's yeah. amazing. Well, yeah. And it was a benefit for the Mime Troupe because there was two legal cases. One, Ronnie Davis was arrested, I think, for being too loud in the park, something like that. Like, really? Yeah. And the other was that they hired Bill Graham and they were started showing foreign films at the mime troupe during the week because there was no theater going on on the, the weekdays. So they showed this film by Jean Genet and they noticed that it immediately sold out as soon as they publicized it. And then it sold out again and again and again. And so they were like, they just kept showing this film and people would show up really early to stand online because it was one of the, Jean Genet made this film about gay people. Uh-huh. I don't remember. In prison. The, in prison, yeah. Oh, wow. And it was a very highbrow film. 
what ended up happening is it became a hub of the gay community, one of the first places where gay people could gather that wasn't in bars. Oh. Right? So for the intellectual gay community in San Francisco, they would come early to the show, line up and talk and and where people. where was this? At the old Mime Troupe Theater, I think is like nineteenth and Cap. Oh, it later wow. burned okay. down. It's not there anymore. Oh, okay. But it was in an old church and so they were creating this community. And then one night the vice squad came and arrested my father for showing pornography. What? Wow, I didn't know that. And that case ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court. No kidding. And they lost. And that film today is banned to be shown in the United States. Really? Wow. Really? So it's sort of considered one of the first San Francisco-based gay rights movement activities was both the showing of that film and the court case. Tell them a little bit about your father and who he was and what he did and your mom and the political activism because that's pretty important. Well, our father, Saul Landau, became a filmmaker in 1965 when he started working at the local PBS station, which was then National Educational Television, KQED, in the special projects department that made documentaries, like news documentaries. So he hadn't had experience as a filmmaker before. He had been interested in it and had kind of played around with it. But he started working there as a producer and produced several documentaries The first one was about drugs in 1965, and then he did one called Losing Just the Same about the riots in Oakland that happened in 1965 and showcased the life of a young man who had been arrested for like throwing rocks or something like that and looked at the black community in West Oakland, and he interviewed a lot of civil rights leaders and community activists at the time. Then he he began working on other news documentaries and then proposed to them to do a documentary with Fidel Castro, which he did in 1968, which was shown on national television. That kind of launched him on an international scale. And he made several others. He ended up getting fired in 1970 after doing a documentary that caused a a big stink which he won a George Polk Award for. Wow. But he was doing investigative journalism and working with other investigative journalists. That movie actually was about nuclear testing in Vada. Oh. And how, because one of his best friends, Paul Jacobs, had been a reporter at the nuclear test site and had developed cancer. Oh. And so this was one of the first exposés of that. Wow. Of that issue. And he got fired for that. Well, not exactly for that. I think it was another film. But basically, when the Republican governor of California came in, he objected that PBS, the local station, was financing these, you know, communist uh, Um, propaganda. Our mothers, Nina Serrano, and still to this day, she's a poet. She also has a, she's a uh, radio commentary and producer. She uh, has a show on KPFA, and also in the local Vallejo station, OzCat. Wow. She was a drama student and a theater director and an actress. And then when we went to Cuba, when my father was making the film on Fidel, she met a Salvadoran poet named Roque Dalton, and she became a writer. And the two of them wrote screenplays, and she became a poet. And so ever since then, she's been 
dabbling in <laughs> filmmaking and wow. poetry and theater. There's an interesting twist to the story also. In 1957, she was invited to go to the World Youth Festival in Moscow, which is an international festival that's held every few years. And she was asked to go as a delegate in Moscow, and she went and brought me with her. I was two. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you went to Moscow at two well, years old. Well, she ended up leaving me in London because they wouldn't let kids in. They wouldn't. So she went on to Moscow and traveled around the Soviet Union at that time with the delegation. And then they were invited to go to China in 1957, and they toured around China. When she returned, she was brought up on charges by the House and Un-American Activities Committee and later expelled from school. No kidding. She was brought up on charges for what? For going to the Soviet Union for China. This was Joseph McCarthy's state, 1957. She told a story about when she got back from her trip to China that her class took a field trip. So before she was expelled from school, her class took a field trip and the teacher was very annoyed with her because he had to stay by her side the whole time because he had gotten word that a group of the men in the class, the other students, had a plan to gang rape her for oh my goodness for her commun- and the teacher was very annoyed that he had to stay by her side the whole time. Oh my god! Wow. So both your parents are political activists. So how did that influence you as people now, and how did that influence you as children? I mean, how did you make that? Was it just normal to? They weren't political activists at the time. They were accused of being political activists. They were very young. I think my mother was 22 at the time. That's so young. Yeah, she was 22 and was really not an activist at all. Uh And I don't think my father was either. He had been kind of duped into participating in some things, but was more an intellectual than an activist, not out Mm. marching in the streets, but working in, in the university and the academic community and exploring different themes political sure. themes but not really participating in and then when we got to san francisco through the the mime troupe they became more politically active and involved in a lot of the political movements here in the bay area the bay area at that time was so active and there was so much happening right politically and i remember when i was seven i remember vividly i was going to edison school on Dolores street in san francisco and i was in the young astronauts club Uh (laughs) and one day the fbi came to the door knocking on the door and they said is your father home and then i remembered i had been drilled if anybody comes here asking for your father say he's not home and slam the door (laughs) and i but i was a young astronaut and i had a big dilemma Mm. but i slammed the door (laughs) (laughs) Susan, I have a question for you on that same vein of having friends whose parents were pretty prolific in the city and also your parents were also prolific in the city. As kids, like, what do you talk about? <laughs> like, what did, what were you doing? In, in, that's kind of what I'm thinking with the three of you. You were all very similar. I mean, in Presidio Hill, we were just kids playing, but some of our field trips would be to a demonstration against the war in Vietnam. That was normal and regular for us to do that. And we went to the courthouse for a field trip, kind of a field trip. One of our teachers got arrested and was dragged on a bus 
and beaten up by the police. And so in front of us, in front of us. And so then we went to the courthouse for Sandy's. His name was Sandy for his arraignment. I guess it must have been his arraignment. And my dad then was a young lawyer. I think he was there also that day. We went to a lot of demonstrations as a family. Mm hmm. And it was a thing, a community thing that people did. We would see other people we know or go as a group. And I remember when I was in ninth grade, I had left Presidio Hill. I was at James Lick, and I led a walkout to go to an anti-Vietnam War demonstration with a bunch of James Lick students. There was some <laughs> big day of moratorium, whatever, and we all walked out and went downtown and protested and got beaten up by the police. Wow. And broke my arm. Kids. Oh, my God. Yeah. In the ninth grade. Uh, yeah, I was 14. And then people would ask me at school, like, what happened to your arm? Oh, the cops beat me up. And that was okay then? Like, nobody did anything about it? What could you do? Yeah, there was nothing to do. There was nothing you could do, really, at that time. What would you do now? Well, I mean, now they'd be canceled, right? I mean, <laughs> it would just be a whole different, they'd be fired. They'd go, you know, like it would be hopefully right in San Francisco. Feels like that's changing or, Maybe. or no. I think the only reason why now it's changed is because there's phones. Yeah. That has videos. That has proof. Right. But even then, you have to have a lot of attention on it. Yeah. It's very hard to have a case like that, have an outcome that has impact. I also remember it at Mission High School, my first day at Mission High School, a group of San Francisco State students who were on strike at San Francisco State came in front of the school and were saying, jailbreak, jailbreak, and trying to get the students to leave the school. Did it happen? Well, some of the students left the school who were met by police who beat them up. And Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah, because San Francisco really was the center at that time of what was happening in the rest of the country. Mm-hmm. So really, it's not necessarily your parents that were political activists, but it's actually part of the fabric of the culture then, where going to demonstrations was a normal thing for a field trip, and your parents were just participating in community things. And It wasn't a normal thing for most people to go to a demonstration. Okay. So our school was run by communists. And so that was particular to that school. Uh, I I don't think other students in other schools were having field trips to demonstrations. Got it. And and also there was a huge awakening of political consciousness and of the whole hippie movement and all that was going on. But for instance, when we moved into Noe Valley, most of our neighbors were extremely conservative. Many of them were policemen or firemen. Sure and not at all welcoming Mm. of our presence. (laughs) Wow, I didn't know that. Very hostile. Yeah, and little by little, hippies started moving in to Noe Valley, but maybe two or three on each block, or or maybe even less. And I remember when we first became aware of the gay community was around 1969, 1970. A bar opened up on 18th and Castro that was pretty much a center of the gay community sure. and the Halloween celebrations that they had Cliff's variety store on 18th and Castro would sponsor a Halloween parade and it would became more of a gay affair uh-huh. every year. And I remember going to see the Coquettes. What is that? It was a kind of a drag performance group oh. that performed at the palace theater on Columbus in North beach. Uh-huh. Sylvester was a member of the group, and they performed kind of outrageous numbers. And, and sure. 
they're still known. There's a Coquettes tour of San Francisco now. Riffing off of the Rockettes in New York. They performed every Friday night at midnight at the Palace Theater. Wow. High stepping. So I have a question. So you lived in Noe Valley and in the Mission District in a time where it sounds like when you moved into Noe Valley, it was more conservative. And then you saw the hippie movement kind of move in and p- political activism and the community change, the gay movement come in. What do you two think is so unique about San Francisco that brought that in and now it's kind of stayed? Do you have any feelings about that? I think it was always there because I've done a lot of research about San Francisco in the past. Mm -hmm. And there was always kind of a bohemian trend being the furthest, the the furthest West you could go. People searching, Mm -hmm. they finally ended up here, you know, and there was always a tradition of bohemian avant-garde kind of, and also probably the gay community had always been, been here. It Mm. was just underground. Quiet. It was quiet. And also we could see that progressive mayors came in where progressive politicians like Willie Brown came in who made it possible for a lot of the institutions to open up. I remember the the neighborhood arts program and many other arts programs started in the late 60s that opened up a lot of space for different kinds of activities. And the Haight-Ashbury was a hub of the hippie movement, mainly because it was cheap Mm. Mm. and it was close to the park. So it was was really nice. But I remember the Haight-Ashbury is mainly a black community. And in the mid-60s, it began to change and again, gentrify a little bit in that that sense. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, it was one of the neighborhoods where if you were a black family, you could buy a house. So black families wound up buying their homes in the hate. And a lot of the hippies that moved in there, it wasn't that it was a particularly cheap neighborhood, but they were big apartments. Mm. So they would share, there'd be 10 people in an apartment so they could split the rent. It wasn't like the cheapest neighborhood, but the apartments were really big, big flats. Big flats, yeah. Yeah. And even when... When I was growing up in San Francisco, <laughs> all of my friends, there were like, yeah, 10 people living in an apartment just right. to be able to afford to live in San and that, Francisco. that's how it always was in the Hades. I remember because my uncle was a hippie mm. and lived right on the panhandle. So I would go visit him in like, I think it was 1967 mm. and kind of saw a lot of what was going on, walk around Hate Street, the head shops and people hanging out and the concerts in the park and things like that. There's a lot of exciting things happening growing up, it sounds like. San Francisco had always sort of two veins. There was the bohemian, later became hippie, arts community, and then this extremely conservative element that I think there was a real political shift that happened. I guess Willie Brown at that time was an assemblyman. Yes. And very much played a part in really moving the city from this tight control of the Irish Catholic Church had really strong presence in the whole political infrastructure and that there was this big shift and this funding for the arts of the neighborhood arts program had a really big impact because before that all the funding for arts had been to the opera the ballet right really the downtown and so this was the idea of hey let's bring arts into the neighborhood and they funded artists and art projects in every neighborhood Wow. Murals, you start to see murals. Yes, you see them more oh, now. Right. And uh, music and street fairs and things like this. So there was a lot of activity in the streets. And right. A lot of opportunities for artists to perform and to show their art. And 
other big movements in San Francisco that had big impacts was one, the civil rights movement. I mean, we don't typically think of San Francisco as a hub of civil rights, but it really was. Mm -hmm. And the Sheraton Palace Hotel was completely segregated and there was a giant sit-in where people were arrested. That was actually led by my mother's current husband, Paul Richards. Really? He was one of the organizers of that. Wow. So there was a sit-in in the Sheraton Palace Hotel, and a little bit after that, segregation was outlawed across the city. Wow. And then the Vietnam War movement in the Bay Area, right, because it was San Francisco and Berkeley students aligning right. to create this giant movement that also inspired a huge number of people to change their thinking. So the anti-war movement was almost a gateway into a whole change of consciousness and then the whole hippie movement and psychedelic movement. So it was a mix of different elements coming together to create this profound cultural change. It's amazing. We've been here to see all those shifts, you know, from a very rough neighborhood to gentrification to all the political movements to desegregation, which are huge. What has inspired you to stay in the San Francisco Bay Area? Well, I think it's still a very vibrant community and, and an arts community. And, and a lot of the people that I came up with are still around here, still doing it. And there's still a lot of support and a lot of interesting cultural movements that are emerging. And for me, it's been really a blessing to be able to work with generations. So younger people come to me for advice, for assistance to help them in these projects And I feel really lucky I got to do the music for this film, La Misión, with Benjamin Bratt, where they were trying to recreate the 70s. Wow. And I said, well, that was my time. That's when I was coming up. So it's like going back to high school again with the knowledge you have now. So, So I feel really good in that sense that there are new waves of people coming up and people coming from other places. Again, looking for that. Here's the end of the road. And a lot of really vibrant movements have emerged from here. It's amazing. And Greg was a musician. I think his first gig, he was probably about 13. They had the band of Smelly Socks. <laughs> <laughs> and then I think they, they transitioned to be the Joyful Watermelon. <laughs> and he started doing gigs on Hate Street, like professional gigs at 13. And so he's been a professional musician his entire life and sort of a pillar and a hub and a lot of the people that Greg played with as a teenager are still his collaborators today. He really watched the whole music scene evolve over over decades. Being a graduate of Mission High is like a badge of honor in a mm-hmm. sense because like Carlos Santana and a lot of people came through that and we were a part of this whole Latin rock movement yes. that emerged from here. We were there at the very beginning. And what has you stay when you grow up in the bay area like so difficult to leave because there's so much to love from the climate to the people to the culture it's just a really great place to live yeah i was very sad to have to leave san francisco i was priced out i could not afford the rent anymore and so when i moved to the east bay I've sort of discovered the East Bay (laughs) for myself. And we found Alameda, and I really have grown to love Alameda. But I also take the ferry over to the city, and it's just so lovely to get on the boat and watch that whole landscape emerge. It's the best. Here, here. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, being on Beyond the Fog Radio. 
It's yeah. been great having you. I think what stood out to me most about this interview was the relationship that they have with each other and then what was so sweet with them when they were kids and that Greg was like the ultra big brother growing up in San Francisco. And then you can still see that same dynamic that they have today, even as adults. <laughs> what did you, what, and, and also Susan, your relationship with them. I mean, it was clearly you, you guys know each other, yeah. which was really fun to kind of hear about your experience growing up and their experience. I just, it was really fun. So Valerie and I were in the fifth grade together. So I've known her since I was 10 years old. Oh my gosh, so long. That's so great. <laughs> but I haven't known her consistently since I was 10. I've only known her, you know, being 10. And then I saw her again, maybe a handful of times. And now we see each other still just a handful of times during the year. But Greg was this handsome guy a long time ago. And their family <laughs> was so super cool. And their father was so influential. So it was so great to have them on and they're very protective of each other and they're very kind and they're very humble considering yeah. all of the accomplishments that they've made and so many truly the truly progressive people that their parents were when they were young and that their mother still is as an elder. Yeah. yeah. And I'm still starstruck at meeting somebody who used to hang out with Carl Sagan. <laughs> I mean, I've been telling people about I'm like, I met somebody who knew Carl Sagan. Am I, does that make me a super nerd? I don't know. Well, and also <laughs> the fact that they flowed back and forth between countries that were communist and completely yeah. out there, you know, Nicaragua and right. Cuba. Who goes to Cuba in the 1960s and 70s? <laughs> the Landau's. Right. So. Exactly. The Landau's. That's who. Yeah, exactly. Oh, I exactly. know. And it also is most amazing that they still live here. You still live here. They're such San Franciscans. You know, you grew up here. You're still here. That really says a lot about the community. And and you, that's what our podcast is all about. I just I loved hearing their story and knowing that they're still living and working and breathing the Bay Area. Right. The Bay Area has so many, you know, wonderful hidden gems like the Landau family. Speaking yes. of hidden gems, who do we have yes. next week? Well, on our next episode, we're going to hear from Doug Dalton, who is the founder of Future Bars, which is this super cool company that created many of San Francisco's innovative and beautiful bars. And he's also the cover of San Francisco Magazine, who is our wonderful partner, and we love them. <laughs> I can't wait for that interview. Where can they find that interview, Susan? on Google, Apple, or Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And Michaela, tell us about social media. Our social media, if you haven't been on there, I would like to personally say that we have upped our game and it's very interesting and very followable. So please go and follow at Beyond the Fog Radio on Instagram and on Facebook. Thank you so much for listening. Yes, thank you so, so much.
Beyond the Fog Radio would not be nearly as fun or as awesome without all the amazing help from Tim O'Shea, Tim Johnson, Arliss Hayes, and of course, our amazing Connor Chang. And we want to thank our media and marketing team, Jaden Robinson and Elizabeth Johnson. We'd also very much like to thank our partners of San Francisco Magazine and the Park James Hotel. And we would love to thank our sponsors. Yay! Our amazing sponsors, Bill O'Keefe, Michael Baines, and Brenda Wright. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. Beyond the Fog Radio, All Rights Reserved, 2023.